Let me invite you now to stand and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. So we're in Romans 13. And really, Romans turns on Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this idea that it is through the mercies of God that are plural, that we have experienced these mercies, that our life transformation follows that. And so from that verse, we find that from Romans chapter 12 through 16, much practical application of the theology that has preceded these chapters. And, and the passage before us in Romans 13, 8 through 14 is no exception. That, in fact, we find out how God's mercy shapes our behavior as we seek to be a living sacrifice and how we live in terms of the relationships that we have with each other and how we live in light of the end. So let's look here. Romans 13, beginning in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this... You know the time, that the hour has come for us to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, let us be those people that are so impacted by the mercies of God that it transforms our relationships, how we look at the world, and how we love others and live in light of the end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some 30 years ago, the biggest car accident pileup happened in Tennessee. And what happened was, that morning a sheriff deputy was patrolling his area, and as he approached the Hiawassee River, a river-affected fog had come in, and it was so thick, this fog was so thick, he couldn't even see to the end of his patrol car. And he got a call that there was an accident, and the fog was so thick, visibility so low, he couldn't even find the accident where it was. And he was exiting I-75, the interstate there, and he almost hit a man who was obviously injured and was wandering down the exit ramp. He stopped to render aid to this man who was clearly injured going down the exit ramp, and he could hear in the distance the screech of tires and that terrible thud 
and sound of metal crashing into metal. Cars were piling up because of the fog. Cars were traveling too fast, and this chain reaction was happening. After he rendered aid to this individual, he left in his patrol car, finally found, got to the end of where the pileup was occurring, got out of his patrol car, almost got hit several times, waving his arms to try to get people to stop and to slow down in this fog. All told, by the time he got the cars to stop, there was a pileup of 99 vehicles, and 11 people had died. Over 40 were, were injured there on I-75. And it was all because this thick fog crowded out people's vision. They couldn't see, and they didn't understand what was happening. Likewise, I think a fog has come into our culture, and some of us may feel like that sheriff deputy that day frantically waving our arms, trying to keep people from getting into the pileup and the injury, and that fog especially has come in with regards to this issue of love, and the biblical definition of love has been lost. And this fog has rolled in where we hear this misunderstanding of what love is, this confusion in our society about love. And we hear things like, you love who you love. Or we hear that true love is affirming someone else's lifestyle, even if that affirmation is what God has forbidden in his word. So there's a lot of confusion about what it means to love people. If we try to stop someone from wrecking their life, we might be told, you are being unloving. You just need to accept me and stop judging me. How do you love well? And what does that even mean in a culture where we disagree about morals, ethics, values, salvation? And how do we love people well, even the difficult ones? That's the subject here of this passage. And we might remember the context here of Romans. Romans has two main purposes. One is an in-depth exposition of the gospel. The other is a bringing together of diverse people, Jews and Gentiles, different religious ethnic backgrounds into one body where there would be ex unity experience. So we're going to look at two things. One is loving others, what that means. And then two, living in light of the end and what that means. So first, loving others well. You might notice verse 8 is a continuation of verse, the idea of verse 7. If you look in your Bibles there, you might have a separation between verses 7 and 8 that the editors of, the, of this version of the Bible have, have put in. Sometimes those uh, subject headings are helpful uh, in this case, maybe not so much, because if we look at verse 7, we get this, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Then you get verse 8, and you see how verse 8 is connected to verse 7, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And so something that we owe, you know, sometimes you can catch ourselves, we don't owe them anything. 
Well, biblically, we owe to every human being because they are made in the image of God, no matter how much they infuriate you or bother you, we owe it to them, to love them. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the, love, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. There's this connection that loving people well is connected to the law. Now, the law, from a biblical definition, and the Apostle Paul with his Jewish background certainly would have understood this, the law, the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law, is not just the do's and don'ts. It's not just a list of proper behavior. Torah is the way. And the understanding of the law is that this is the way that God has decreed life to be lived the best way. God is the author of life, the creator of life. He knows how life ought to be lived, so his law is the way to go. So you notice here, and this is where we start to cut through the fog that has come into our society regarding love. Love has an ethical dimension to it. And you see the connection here in Romans uh, 13, 8 and 9. Love is connected to the law. In other words, it is not loving to allow someone to do that which God has forbidden. That is not a biblical definition of love. Love is connected to the law. So love is connected to the law in terms of it has fulfilled the law. It is the fulfillment of the law. So we'll, we'll understand why in a moment. But verse 9 connects love with the Ten Commandments. And we see some of the commandments listed there. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Now these four commandments that are listed there are all relational sins. There are all sins against another person. And so part of what love is, part of what love is, look at verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The commandments that are listed there in verse 9 mean that when we act on those sins, we are actually being unloving to someone else. And you see here then, love has this ethical dimension to it that involves doing no wrong to a neighbor. That when we think, how do I love this person well, we have to think in terms of the law, the ethical and moral dimensions that God has given us that we would love by doing no wrong to a neighbor. This is what love is. Love is not a toleration of error or a toleration of evil. Or saying, well, this person is just that way. Love insists on doing no wrong to a neighbor. And love involves, how do we interpret doing no wrong? These relational sins that are get against another person. So in that way, love is connected to fulfilling the law. And we love others well by conducting ourselves in such a way that we don't do them harm. 
the connection is about hurting relationships. Now this, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's a quotation from Leviticus 19.18, and it is an echo of Jesus' words that were read earlier by Mike Kelly in our worship service from Mark chapter 12. So part of loving others well is following God's way, following the law, uh, the Torah, not as a means of salvation, but as an understanding that love has this ethical dimension where we want people's good, and so we conduct ourselves in a way that doesn't hurt them. Uh, you read here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a large part of the biblical wisdom behind the expression of love is just a very practical understanding that we do love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We feed ourselves. We perform maintenance on ourselves, so to speak, when we brush our teeth or floss our teeth or uh, take care of ourselves physically. Likewise, there is in biblical love a care and a conduct that we are already practicing on ourselves that we extend to others. So that's part of this concept of biblical love. We're already doing it for ourselves. We already take care of ourselves. And this is extending that care to our neighbor such that love is fulfilling the law. So loving others well, I mean, this is really where the theological rubber meets the road. How well we love others, but especially how we love difficult people. How we love difficult people. Now, I would define, I have a definition here, uh, uh, well, at least some examples of loving difficult people. I think difficult people just so we are on the same page, and we've all experienced difficult people, that's something we all have in common. They're there to tell you, I told you so. That's part of what difficult people do. When you, when you mess up, when you make a mistake, they're there to say, mm, I told you so. They're there to introduce shame into your life, to show you how you are not adequate, how you are not good, to point out your faults, Difficult people love to, oftentimes conflict for them is life-giving. They want to be in these conflictual relationships because they feel alive. Difficult people can be critical uh, to you about anything. And critical people, difficult people, excuse me, difficult people, often they interpret their behavior by saying things like, I'm just trying to help. Have you ever heard those words? I'm just trying to help. You know, if you're really helping, you don't have to tell me you're trying to help. You only have to tell me you're trying to help when you're not being helpful. Do you follow me? So this is some characteristics of difficult people. Difficult people, hard to get along with. Um, how do we love difficult people well, you know, one, one quick story here. We had, early on in our church planning days, uh, we had a difficult person. I mean, this is one of the, the most, you know, in the Hall of Fame of difficult people, this person uh, was inducted. And 
difficult in terms of really turning people off to Jesus in the gospel. I mean, this, there, there was a sinister component to this. And on a few occasions, just trying to be a good shepherd as a pastor, I told this individual, in no uncertain terms, I finally had to come to the, I said, we are not the church for you. We are not the church for you. You're over here. We're over here. This is not going to work. I finally told him. And he said, because you told me that, I'm not going anywhere. I told you this is Hall of Fame difficult. He said, in fact, I'm going to be a thorn in your side. This is what he told me. Like I needed that, right? And I went to our governing session, the group of elders that were overseeing us as a church plant, because we didn't have our own elders yet. They were at Faith Presbyterian Church in San Antonio. They were so good. I went to him and I said, I got this, this difficult person. Have you had a conversation with him? Have you told him, you know, hey, this isn't the church for you? What? Yes, I've, I've told him. And I said, I'm coming to you because this kind only comes out by prayer. I need you to pray that this individual would leave for the benefit and the good of God's people. And you know what? They prayed and he left. Shortly after they started praying, he left. And as I look back and tell you about that situation, I want you to have a different approach to the difficult people in your life. Number one, I want you to realize we're difficult. We're difficult people. It is difficult for God to love you. Not in the terms of he lacks the power to do so. But when we look at our salvation and the links that God had to go to to rescue us from sin, then we know we're difficult to love. Difficult people are not just out there. They're right here. We are difficult people. God had to send his only begotten son. That's how difficult we are. So we are difficult people. So realize that. That's very humbling. That in some ways, and if, you don't, if, if you're not tracking with me, if you don't believe me, ask those closest with you, am I difficult to love? Ask those closest to you, do I do anything that really annoys you or bothers you? And you'll get a, you'll get a graduate course on humility, uh, asking that, that question. It's a scary question, isn't it? Is there anything I need to change in my life? What do you think? We are difficult people, and that's humbling to think about, isn't it? And it helps us to understand that the way we love difficult people is understanding the love that we have experienced from God. We are made in his image, meant to reflect his character onto this created order. And part of how we do that is in loving people who don't deserve it. In loving people who are difficult with us. It's part of how we communicate that the gospel is real and true. 
The gospel tells us that in spite of us being difficult to God, God still loved us and sent Jesus for us. Therefore, part of our calling as Christians is to reflect that kind of love for difficult people out into the world. So one, we're difficult. And when you're relating to difficult people, number two, thank God for them and their presence in your life. Why is that? Well, because difficult people make us more dependent on God. Difficult people remind us that we are difficult and that God in his power has loved us well. Difficult people remind us of the truth of the gospel. So the key to loving difficult people is realizing you are one and realizing and apprehending, apprehending something of the power of the gospel that overcomes our difficulty. How God has done that in Christ it is the experience of his mercies that indeed we are able to love others. And so, thank God for the difficult people in your life because they give you an opportunity to love like Jesus loves you. Thank God for the difficult people in your life. The people who want to conflict and they're just always being dramatic about Everything The people you're in relationship with who if you step out of line one inch, they are there to tell you I told you so. Those kind of difficult people, thank God for them in your life. And when they bring their criticisms to you and bring all your shortcomings to bear, remind them you don't know the half of it. If you only truly knew, remind them of that. And remind them of God's grace in your life. So your love for difficult people comes in part based on your grasp of God's love for you. And as we connect that experience of being a difficult people, being loved by God, we can thank God for the difficult people in our life who give us the opportunity to love like Jesus does and to challenge us in our sanctification as well. So loving others is one of the things that we're called to based on our experience of the mercies of God. And the other thing we are called to here is to live in light of the end. And you see this in verses 11 through 14. The tone shifts in this passage. Paul writes, besides this, you know the time." that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. There are only, biblically, speaking of chronology, two areas of time. So when people ask, are we living in the end times, there's only two times to live in. The time before Christ came and the time after Christ came. The Bible only has two categories of time, and we are in the last days in terms of we, like the Apostle Paul, are on the other side of the cross. And so, for the Apostle Paul, he was living in the end times just like we are. We are living in the last days. And what is clear here is the Apostle Paul had the expectation of the imminent return of Christ. That Christ could come back any day. 
And that imminent return led the Apostle Paul to live each day as a gift and to live using that imminent return of Christ as a motivation to love others well. So besides this, you know the time, this is verse 11, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now that might be confusing there in verse 11. Salvation nearer to us than when we first believed? What the Apostle Paul is talking about here is final sanctification, the final deliverance from our sins when Christ returns. So there is salvation in terms of I've received Christ, I'm wholly resting upon him by faith alone. That is salvation, but we can also speak of salvation as the return of Christ and being saved uh, finally when the sanctification process is complete in Christ. So that's true. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And what are we to do then? Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Putting on the armor of light reminds us that we're in a spiritual battle. That this is a fight, a battle to live holy lives for God in this sinful world. And we're to cast off the works of darkness. Those are listed there in verse 13. All of those relational type sins, both the serious ones, that we would categorize them this way, the serious ones, and then quarreling and jealousy as well because they strike at the unity of the church. Remember, one of the purposes of Romans, Paul's trying to bring together Jews and Gentiles together in one church, and quarreling and jealousy strikes at that unity. And then we're told, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to allow our behavior and our way of thinking to show forth Christ's character in all that we do and say. So we put these commandments together and we understand that we don't win against sin if we try to call a truce or we make friends with our sin. Or we're comfortable with it. We read here in verse 14, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, we don't set the table for sin. We avoid certain situations that might lead us to sin. And we understand that what we have with God in Christ is so much better than what sin can offer to us. And we ask God to change our desires that we would want more of what he has for us than what this world offers. So looking to Christ as our all, understanding that we don't need what sin falsely offers to us. The time is short for us. Today is the day to repent and to love people well according to to the scripture. Our world needs us to cut through the fog of this definition of love and the romantic notions that pass for love and to cut through that to 
to love others well, and that it would start here in the church. So from this, we know we might need to mend a relational fence. We might need to love a difficult person. You know, when your phone's ringing and you look at who's calling and you're like, oh. That instead of doing that, you would thank God for difficult people in your life because they shape you to make you more dependent on God, to sanctify you in anything which makes you or anyone who makes you love like Jesus loves you is good. Even though they're difficult. Even though we are difficult. Our calling here is to deepen our apprehension of God's love for us. That he has loved us in the midst of our difficulty that we might pass on that love and express it to others. And that we would live each day as a gift because the time is short. Our hour has come for us to wake from sleep as we live all for Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we in, indeed thank you by faith for the difficult people in our life. For the people who remind us of our faults, our sins, and our problems. We thank you for them that they drive us to love like you loved us and like you love us. And we pray, Lord, that by so doing, we would give witness to the gospel. That we would, instead of running from difficult people, remember we are those difficult people. And just as you move towards us in Christ, we would move towards them. Help us to wake from our sleep, living each day as a gift from you. Repenting and loving in the ways that you call us to. Bring us together, unite us together as a church, as we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.